Hey everyone, welcome back to all my listeners. Now I hope you're all having a great day so far. I know I am. And if it's your first time finding me, thanks so much and welcome. Welcome to episode four of my sixth season. And guess what, you guys? I am just nine episodes away from my 100th episode. Can you believe that? That is just crazy, right? Well, I'm just humbled and ever so grateful for all of your continued support. There is so much that goes into each and every episode, so I just love seeing the results pay off. From thousands of downloads to being in the top 25 Apple Podcasts charts at least 10 times in the U.S., and over 50 episodes have been in the top 100 U.S. charts, and I also have an international presence in at least 40 countries. My podcast makes the top charts in India and the Philippines, and I'm also climbing to the third ranking in Feedspot's medical billing and coding podcasts. Now, I do know that healthcare coding and healthcare compliance podcasts are not nearly as snazzy and buzzworthy as Crime Junkie and Morbid, but I am grateful to my little niche and all of my loyal listeners who continue to support me and keep me going strong week after week. Today is Wednesday, May 25th, 2022. My name is Sonal Patel, and this is the Paint the Medical Picture podcast series. Now, all right, you guys, I've got so much to dive into today. So I'm gonna be diving into my compliance tips and my recommendations today on the new, hot off the press CBR that's just being mailed out for critical care evaluation and management services. But wait a minute, did I misspeak? Are you guys hearing things? No, well, sometimes I definitely do misspeak on this podcast, and I know we all hear things from time to time, but today, this is accurate. I did discuss another CBR, CBR 202110, back in 2021, or in my season three. So let's see what's going on for 2022. And hey, hey, it's my favorite month-end episode where I discuss highlights from the month of May's criminal and civil enforcement cases involving fraud, waste, and abuse. And I go ahead and round out today's episode with the remarkable quote on vision and leadership by our 40th U.S. President, Ronald Reagan. If you checked me out on LinkedIn, you know I'm all about compliance and protecting our physicians and valued healthcare professionals when it comes to the business of medicine. I hope this week with me brings you enough to take back to your organizations, to want to dive in deeper, to use my tips and best practices to ensure success. I hope this podcast will help you boost the quality of documentation capture and improve coding accuracy as you help your providers paint the medical picture. If you like what you're hearing, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss another episode. Please write in a review and kindly drop me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to my podcast. I'd really love your support. And as always, a friendly disclaimer. Remember, I'm bringing you the news, current healthcare industry news, my compliance tips and my recommendations based on my over 10 years of experience in front office, in back end, in coding and in billing for multi-specialty physicians, compliance and auditing for both ENM and surgical operative reports. These are my opinions alone and are not to be construed as legal advice. So 
let's get into Newsworthy, the month's fraud, waste, and abuse cases. The month of May saw a whopping 36 cases as of the recording of this episode. And of these, there are 11 women allegedly involved in these enforcement cases. Early May saw a case of a woman sentenced to a prison term of three years. She was also ordered to pay over $1,000 in restitution for alleged Medicaid fraud. Investigations from the Mifuku, or the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit, alleged that she billed in-home personal care services to patients when she was not, in fact, there at all. Early May also saw settlements with five nursing homes to resolve allegations of patient neglect, insufficient staff training, and inadequate care for vulnerable nursing home residents. These cases involved preventable harm and, in some situations, the the multiple deaths of nursing home residents. These settlements also required important training and compliance requirements to ensure patient safety and proper response to medical emergencies moving forward. These multiple settlements will return more than $250,000 to the state. Specifics for one of the nursing home's locations revealed that facility staff failed to appropriately turn and reposition a resident at high risk for pressure wounds for over five weeks. This patient experienced rapid health declines related to the pressure injuries and was then admitted to the hospital where she later died. The agreement there also requires a compliance program to ensure staff are trained as part of new staff orientation programs and semi-annually on the appropriate provision and documentation of preventative skin care and repositioning, as well as annual self-audits and certifications of compliance. The second nursing home details include that it also failed to comply with long-term care regulations requiring facilities to train staff and maintain a program of preventative skin care. It also failed to comply with long-term care regulations and provide quality care to residents. It also committed the wanton and reckless neglect of a resident during her post-surgery rehabilitation, which resulted in medically avoidable pressure injuries. The agreement there also required a three-year compliance program to ensure facility staff are trained on preventative skin care, as well as self-audits and certifications of compliance. Now moving on to the third nursing home. Here, investigators determined that it failed to conduct any code blue or patient medical emergency trainings between May 13th of 2016 and July 10th of 2019, and then failed to adequately conduct mock automated external defibrillator or AED drills for its nursing staff from again, September 16th, 2016 through July 10th of 2019. And as part of their settlement agreement, they will enter into a three-year compliance program as well to ensure facility staff receive mock code training on an annual basis and as part of new staff orientation programs, as well as self-audits and certifications of compliance. Now, the fourth nursing home specifics include that it failed to properly implement its continence care protocol for more than 10 
residents, or to ensure that staff competencies in bowel management protocols were being met. The facility also failed to provide adequate and appropriate care to one patient, which resulted in her hospitalization and subsequent death due to severe fecal impaction. Now, finally, in the fifth nursing home, investigators there alleged that it failed to ensure that its staff was CPR certified and trained on emergency response protocols and procedures. It also failed to report the significant health declines of one resident to a physician. Later, that facility failed to respond appropriately to that resident's medical emergency and render proper CPR, and the resident died. The settlement agreement there also requires a compliance program to ensure that staff provide all appropriate services to residents and adequately respond to medical emergencies. Early May also saw a woman who allegedly submitted and caused to be submitted fraudulent claims to Medicaid for applied behavior analysis services for children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, or ASD. Now, she submitted claims for dates of service when no applied behavior analysis services of any kind had been provided to the Medicaid patients identified in the claims. She also allegedly inflated the number of hours for certain claims. It's also alleged that while this woman was awaiting sentencing on that case, it was discovered that she was a silent partner in another company that provided applied behavior analysis services to children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Now here too, she was allegedly responsible for billing claims to Medicaid, managing payroll, and recruiting and screening potential employees. She allegedly also had access to and used her business partner's email and other online accounts to operate the company. Now she and this company engaged in healthcare fraud allegedly by billing Medicaid for thousands of dollars in services not rendered, and in particular, allegedly billing for services not rendered by this woman. In total, Medicaid suffered a loss of over $550,000 as a result of her alleged conduct. Now, mid-May also saw a woman indicted on a third-degree neglect charge for allegedly neglecting an elderly disabled person in her care. The victim suffered heat stroke and second degree burns as a result of her alleged neglect. The woman allegedly left the elderly disabled person in her care at a facility in direct sunlight, long enough to cause the resident to suffer heat stroke and second degree burns on her legs, chest, and arms. The victim's body temperature reached 106 degrees. Now, third-degree charges carry a sentence of three to five years in state prison and a fine of up to $15,000. The charges, of course, are merely accusations and the defendant is presumed innocent until proven guilty. Now, mid-May also saw a female physician charged with fraudulently billing more than $8.4 million to Medicare. Now, from June 2018 through May of 2021, it is alleged that this female physician participated in a scheme to bill Medicare approximately $8.4 million in durable medical equipment, prosthetics, orthotics, and supplies, or DMEPOS. 
that were medically unnecessary. Now, as a part of the scheme, it's alleged that telemarketers and call centers would contact or cold call Medicare beneficiaries in an attempt to convince those patients to agree to receive DME POS, specifically braces, in the mail. Now, the call center operators and telemarketers often told patients that the braces would be provided at no cost and that a doctor would be contacting them. Now, the indictment states that the call centers and telemarketers would then use general information about the patients, including their name, their Medicare number, and their purported diagnosis or diagnoses to prepare DME POS order forms that certified that the equipment and supplies were medically necessary. And according to the indictment, the doctor received these order forms and signed them, even though she had never spoken to, never examined, never assessed, or otherwise established a doctor-patient relationship with the beneficiary. As a result, DME POS suppliers shipped the items listed on the order forms to the beneficiaries and submitted a corresponding claim to Medicare. Now, mid-May also saw the Justice Department filing a False Claims Act complaint against a medical device manufacturer and its owner for training providers to improperly reuse disposable items. Now, the complaint filed alleges that the defendants violated the False Claims Act by causing healthcare providers to bill Medicare for services in which the providers improperly reused single-use rectal sensors and single-use catheters on multiple patients. The United States alleges that the reuse of these devices on multiple patients unnecessarily exposed vulnerable Medicare beneficiaries to the risks of serious bacterial, fungal, and viral infections. Now, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, that's our FDA, cleared this company's rectal pressure sensor to be used as a single-user device and the anorectal manometry catheter to be used as a single-use device. For example, the instructions for use identified the rectal pressure sensor as, quote, a potential biohazard, end quote, and state, quote, this sensor is restricted for single person use only. Use by another person is strictly prohibited by federal regulations, end quote. According to the United States' complaint, the defendants allegedly knew of these restrictions, but for years they allegedly encouraged and instructed healthcare providers to reuse the rectal pressure sensors and anorectal manometry catheters on multiple patients using a glove or a condom to cover the probes as a way to reduce the overhead costs associated with the manufacturer's systems. Now, this reuse, which exposed patients to unnecessary risks of infection, was not reasonable and not necessary, and thus was ineligible for Medicare coverage. In addition to these safety risks, the manufacturer allegedly made no attempt to determine if the probes worked effectively when reused under these conditions. Of course, there were also many, many of the usual suspects like more opioids distributors, overprescribing, kickbacks, 
bribery schemes, even more elder abuse cases, even more DME fraud, and of course, money laundering. But I wanted to pay particular attention to a couple of cases that focus on supervision requirements and more. Now, first, a university medical system has agreed to pay the United States over $200,000 to resolve allegations that it violated the Federal False Claims Act by submitting false claims to the United States for radiation therapy and diagnostic services that lacked the required supervision from a physician. Now, according to the settlement agreement from January 16th of 2014 through July 5th of 2018, this university health system billed Medicare for radiation therapy and diagnostic services. And during this time period, Medicare covered radiation therapy and diagnostic services furnished in an outpatient setting when rendered under the direct supervision of a physician. Now, direct supervision means that the physician must be immediately available to furnish assistance and direction throughout the performance of the procedure. It does not mean that the physician must be present in the room when the procedure is performed. But at all relevant times, the university health system had only one physician available to supervise radiation therapy and diagnostic services. The settlement resolves allegations that on many occasions, this one physician was already performing uninterruptible radiation oncology services at a separate location, while unsupervised radiation therapy and diagnostic services were being performed at this location. Now, and second, I want to go over a healthcare information technology company that also operates Medicare-approved IDTFs, or Independent Diagnostic Testing Facilities. Now, they've agreed to pay over $3 million to resolve allegations that it submitted or caused to be submitted false claims to Medicare for reimbursement. The United States alleged that from January of 2016 to December of 2020, the company violated the False Claims Act by falsely identifying the place of service for certain services it performed to obtain a higher reimbursement rate from Medicare. Now, in particular, the United States alleged that in connection with its billing for overnight pulse oximetry claims, the company knowingly submitted false claims to Medicare identifying the IDTF located in San Francisco, California as the location of service for overnight pulse oximetry tests when in fact no services were performed at that location in relation to the overnight oximetry claims. Now, the United States further alleged that from January of 2016 to December of 2020, the company administered overnight pulse oximetry tests and at times also billed Medicare for single determination pulse oximetry tests, which are commonly referred to as oxygen spot checks for the same patient when in fact the only test performed was the overnight test. In particular, the United States the United States alleged that because an awake reading is necessarily taken as a part of an overnight pulse oximetry test, the separate billing of a, quote, spot check, end quote, is redundant and generally not necessary. 
And accordingly, the United States alleged that the company knowingly submitted false claims by separately billing for both an oxygen spot check and an overnight pulse oximetry test when only an overnight pulse oximetry test was performed. All right. My goodness, I went over quite a few of my favorites. There were so many to go over, but these really packed a punch for me. So what do you think these are, right? May mania, may mayhem, may madness. I mean, this was all just crazy and over the top. So, so many intrigued me, right? And, and I hope I did some justice to a few of them here. So many learning lessons from all of them, in my opinion. But I hope the two I featured are ones that you can take home with you as well, right? So to speak, because direct supervision means you must be immediately available to provide assistance when needed, right? You can't be 20 minutes away performing a procedure or surgery or a service at some other location or otherwise simply not immediately available, right? That is not what direct supervision means. And as for our spot check pulse ox and overnight pulse ox CPT codes, always remember that Medicare has given CPT code 94760 a status indicator of T, T for Tom, which means that there are RVUs and payment amounts for these services, but they're only paid if there are no other services that are payable under the physician fee schedule billed on the same date by the same provider. If any other services payable under the physician fee schedule are billed on the same date by the same provider, these services are going to be bundled into the physician services for which payment has already been made. So of course that any other service payable and billed by the same provider on the same date of service is the overnight pulse ox, right? with the CPT code 94762. So it was likely that the modifier 59 or another modifier was appended to bypass the CCI edits that are at play between these two codes. But again, the spot check pulse ox carries the status indicator of T. So in my opinion, this should have never even been passed through to begin with. Um, but that's what the modifier does. It can bypass the edits completely, even though there's a status indicator of T on that spot check pulse ox code of 94760, right? So remember, I do my very best each and every month trying to highlight those cases I find most interesting. I try my best to provide solid guidance and advice to providers to be mindful of correct coding and compliant billing practices to avoid joining these very serious, these very public, and often very, very hefty outcomes. I always believe these types of fraud, waste, and abuse cases are most helpful. So please take a deeper look into these reports and see how they may affect you, your provider, or your facility. Start self-auditing your service claims and coordinating documentation to ensure you are meeting compliance. And now it's time for my best practice tips in trusty tip. 
So in today's compliance tip, I wanted to focus on the latest comparative billing report or CBR that's been issued on critical care evaluation and management services. Now this is CBR number 202205. That's right, it's the fifth CBR for the new year for 2022. Now, right now, during the end of May, CMS is going to be issuing this comparative billing report, the CBR, on Medicare Part B claims for critical care evaluation and management services. This CBR 202205 focuses on providers that performed critical care services, but excluding providers with an emergency medicine specialty. Now, statistics were calculated for each provider, all providers in the state, and all providers in the nation. Now, specifically on those rendering providers nationwide that obviously submitted claims for critical care services. Now, those submission of claims have to be involving CPT codes 99291 and 99292, which of course reflect our critical care services. Now, of course, the CBR reminds us that if you are issued it, you should be using this data-driven report to compare your billing practices with those of your peers in your state and across the nation. Now, CBR 202205 summarizes statistics for services with dates of service for one year, specifically from January 1st of 2021 through December 31st of 2021. Now, they hone in here on a specific number. There were 94,984 rendering providers with combined allowed charges of over $1 billion for providers that submitted claims for critical care services. Now, the CBR outlines that, of course, our critical care services are vulnerable. And why is that? They're shining a light on, according to the 2021 Medicare Fee-for-Service Supplemental Improper Payment Data Report, there is a 11.5% improper payment rate for Medicare Part B critical care providers, which represents over $134 million in claims. Now, 11.5% of this improper payment rate is due to insufficient documentation. And then 83.8% of that improper payment rate is due to incorrect coding. That's a huge number. And then specifically 11.4% of the improper payment rate is specific for CPT code 99291. Now, of course, the desired behavior here that CMS wants from critical care services, right? We have to be using proper documentation for critical care. And what CMS recommends, of course, is the medical necessity must be documented. There must also be documentation supporting that there was a critical illness or a critical injury with acute impairment to one or more vital organ systems. Documentation must also support a high complexity in decision-making by the provider. And then, of course, documentation must support that the time was spent in critical care services. And then they'd also like to see, once again, the proper use of modifier 25, which of course you have to have documentation that confirms there was a significant and separately identifiable ENM service that took place. So let's go over some fundamentals. What is critical care, right? So according to our CPT, 
books, the direct delivery by a physician or other qualified healthcare professional of medical care for a critically ill or critically injured patient. A critical illness or injury acutely impairs one or more vital organ systems such that there is a high probability of imminent or life-threatening deterioration in the patient's condition. Now, that quote is directly from our CPT codebook. Now, the CPT codebook also defines, let's go over this again, modifier 25. It is, quote, a significant, separately identifiable evaluation and management service by the same physician or other qualified healthcare professional on the same day of the procedure or other service, end quote. It also says, quote, a significant, separately identifiable ENM service is defined or substantiated by documentation that satisfies the relevant criteria for the respective ENM service to be reported, end quote. Now, let's go over some CPT coding examples for minutes of critical care time. So, the definition for our CPT code 99291, right, that is defined as critical care, evaluation and management of the critically ill or critically injured patient the first 30 to 74 minutes. So, how would you code that? It would be coded as 99291 times one unit. That one unit is representing 30 to 74 minutes. Then how would you use CPT code 99292? That's defined as critical care, evaluation and management of the critically ill or critically injured patient each additional 30 minutes. And it reminds us to list it separately in addition to the code for the primary service. And of course, the primary service is the first unit of critical care time of 99291. So then if you want to be coding for 75 to 104 minutes, you would be using 99291 times one unit and then 99292 times one unit. Then if you'd like to code for 105 minutes to 134 minutes, you would be capturing on claims 99291 times one unit and then 99292 times two units. And then moving on, if you're trying to capture time for 135 minutes through 164 minutes, you would be sending out on claims 99291 times one unit and then adding on 99292 times three units. And then finally, for example, if you want to be sending out claims for 165 minutes through 194 minutes of critical care time, you would be billing 99291 times one unit and then adding on 99292 times four units. Now let's move on. This particular CBR 202205 is going to be analyzing the following things, right? those rendering providers nationwide that have submitted claims for critical care services. And of course, the submission of those claims by the providers for our CPT code specifically for the codes 99291 and 99292. Then the criteria for why you've received this particular brand new CBR 202205. They have identified you to be a provider who is significantly higher 
compared to either state or national averages in any of three metrics, which are going to be greater than or equal to the 90th percentile. And then if you're a provider who has at least 30 total patients with claims for either CPT code 99291 or CPT code 99292. And third, if you're a provider who's had at least $20,000 in total allowed charges for critical care, evaluation, and management CPT codes. And finally, fourth, if you're a provider who received that CBR I talked about in season three, right? That was that CBR number 202110. So if you received that back in 2021, you're going to be receiving it again this year. Now, the metrics that are involved in this new CBR 202205. So the report provides the following metrics. Number one, the percentage of services submitted with modifier 25. Number two, the metric of the average number of visits per beneficiary. Metric number three, the average allowed charges per beneficiary. Now remember, it's so critical to understand that this CBR does not indicate that you're going to get an official audit. Although please be mindful that this particular phrase is directly coming from the MACs that issue the CBRs. So again, I've said this so many times, take that with plenty and plenty of grains of salt because more directly consider this to be your notice your warning that you are being looked at closely. The value of the CBR to providers is that it serves as a tool to look at their billing patterns as compared to their peers. The value also includes the facts that specific coding guidelines and billing information will be detailed. The CBR informs providers whose billing patterns differ from those of their peers. Now, the desired behavior here is to capture proper and compliant documentation for these types of critical care services, right? So understanding how to correctly apply units to each code is critical, right? You must ensure that you're capturing all of the critical care time appropriately in documentation and in the units appended to 99291 and 99292. And also note that critical care guidelines and the appropriate use of critical care codes. Quote, critical care involves high complexity decision-making to assess, manipulate, and support vital system functions to treat single or multiple vital organ system failures and or to prevent further life-threatening deterioration of the patient's condition, end quote. And then medical care provided to a critically ill, injured, or post-operative patient qualifies as a critical care service only if both the illness or injury and the treatment being, being provided meet the above requirements, right? Those critical care services must be medically necessary and medically reasonable. Now, all of these quotes I've just stated are all details that you can find in the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, Chapter 12, Section 30.6.1. And a big tip from me, when trying to capture critical care codes, 
review documentation thoroughly and know that many, many services are already included or bundled into critical care. These bundled types of services include vascular access procedures, ventilator management, temporary transcutaneous pacing, pulse oximetry, gastric intubation, blood gases and information data stored in computers, blood draws, chest x-rays, the professional component, and the interpretation of cardiac output measurements. And then let's not get started on modifier 25, right? Goodness, it continues to be that bad boy modifier time and time and time again. So this CBR should have all of us performing critical care services really buckle down and self-audit whether we receive this particular CBR in the mail or not. It's a great time to dive deeper into your own data. This is 2022. It's the year of the audit. So beat those payers to the punch and pay attention to what you are sending out the door. Is it really in compliance? Because it's fundamental if you have Medicare as a payer to keep your eye on correct and compliant coding and billing practices and make sure that you are adhering to all of them. It's so important to make sure all of your clinical documentation addresses and captures all the indications for coverage and you avoid the 11.5% of this improper payment rate that's due to insufficient documentation and the whopping 83.8% .8 of this improper payment rate that's due to incorrect coding, specifically for our 99291. So a better, smarter approach is one that's proactive and starts by painting a clear, rich, and vibrant medical picture the first time so your certified medical coders can then abstract codes with accuracy. And finally, I focus season six's spark on vision and leadership. I want this sixth season spark to be filled with the world's thought leaders, writers, artists, philosophers, everyone who inspires the need for vision and leadership in all that we do. So in this week's inspiring quote in Spark is from our 40th US president, Ronald Reagan. To grasp and hold a vision that is the very essence of successful leadership, not only on the movie set where I learned it, but everywhere. So very true, right? I think this is an amazing quote that reminds us and inspires us that we all are capable of having and maintaining vision. It reminds us that we are leaders and we are visionaries in our own professions, whatever those may be. This quote reminds us that we are the leaders and the visionaries in our own lives. We are all most capable of learning from all of our respective and collective environments. I am happy Ronald Reagan's spark still burns brightly in all of us today. So that wraps up today's episode. And as always, I appreciate you all diving into today with me. If you want more information from me, please go ahead and follow me on LinkedIn. I'll leave links to everything in the show notes below. Please have an amazing week ahead and enjoy some downtime, much needed downtime, fun time, this Memorial Day long weekend. Please continue being safe and healthy as well. 
Thank you so much for listening in on today's episode. And I hope every week with me brings you closer to helping your providers paint a masterpiece. See you next Wednesday.